Welcome back. A change of direction now as George leads us into a discussion that, quite honestly, may be a bit bumpy for some. It's time to look at things that distract us from our pursuits of communion with our Creator. They're sometimes referred to as idols. Now, the interesting and perhaps challenging aspect of our discussion is that we're going to suggest some additions to that list that you may not have considered in the past. Keep in mind that our intent here is to help you grow in your relationship with God. That said, let's jump in and get to it. Here's George. Let's turn now to chapter 22 in what we believe and why religious concepts. The gospel is arguably God's greatest revelation to us. But if we worship our concepts about it, rather than live it, we render it worthless and we can become dangerous. A couple of sessions back, I said, much of what has seemed over the centuries like a vital defense of God or of Jesus or of the Christian faith has in fact been a battle of concepts within a philosophical framework that is ultimately foreign to the God who reveals himself in the Bible. Just because these debates have used biblical terms does not make the debates either holy or meaningful. That was when we were talking about Trinity. Now, I want to apply this more broadly and focus even more deeply on essentials and non-essentials, on what matters and what doesn't. If I do this well, you are likely to find it very unsettling. It may make you angry. At a minimum, it will be an intellectual, emotional, and cultural challenge. We all have methods of thinking and feeling about things, analyzing, measuring, judging, accepting, rejecting, praising, weeping, to determine whether something is, to us, true, valuable, dangerous, trite, profound, unimportant, beautiful, and so on. These methods are partly rooted in our common humanity and partly taught to us by our cultures, our experiences, and our educational training in the social, scientific, religious, psychological, and emotional worlds that we all inhabit. These vary considerably across the world and through history. It is a very difficult thing to try to see and feel something afresh, free of these methods, or even to realize that these methods are limiting us in how we comprehend and emotionally respond. And yet, even if that assertion is granted and the desire is present to realize and then step beyond our ingrained methods of thinking and feeling, it is really hard to do, near to impossible, and yet essential. So try to hang in there with me to the end, and then turn what I have to say over to God for his judgment. Two doors stand before us. One is labeled God, and the other lectures about God. 
Everyone is lined up to go through the second because going through the first is too frightening. But if, as Scripture reveals, there is a God who is creator of us and all that is around us and who is other than us and beyond our comprehension, but who desires relationship with us and reveals himself to us to the degree that we can receive it, which he knows, and makes covenant with us and offers us access to himself and reconciliation even when we have left him, then why would we choose lectures instead? The testimony of Scripture, which is the testimony of generations of people he created and led and loved, is just this. He desires and makes available to us a loving, chastening, and deepening relationship with himself, a covenant. He offers counsel on what makes this possible and what hinders it. He chases after us even when we rebel. He desires us to be with him so much that he willingly suffered death to demonstrate it. He cares for us and tells us to care for each other. And we find other things to do instead. We ignore him or deny he exists. For agnostics and atheists, at least they can claim no obligation to follow his commands or his teaching on love. Instead, they must construct their own systems of relationships, justice, and organization. And these stand or fall based on efficacy or power or inattention. But for those who claim to believe in God, we seem largely to fail often and often miserably at living out what he called us to do as our part of the covenant. As his creations, you'd think following his lead would be our heart's desire. We find other things to do instead. These other things include the obvious, work, entertainment, hobbies, food, sports, and other distractions. These are not ungodly in and of themselves. They are an issue only when they consume us and diminish or replace love of God and each other. But there is another class of other things that is innately ungodly, though it has the guise of godliness when we elevate things over the love of God or people. And here I do not just mean the conspicuous things of ambition, wealth, fame, success, possessions. These can easily replace God on the throne of our hearts. And our pursuit of any of them can run roughshod over people who get in our way. Wealth, fame, success, and possessions can be handled with humility and caring, but they carry obvious danger, both in their pursuit and in reliance upon them 
once obtained. But this is all well and often proclaimed. It's not my focus here. Rather, it is our willing idolatry of religious things and our vicious defense of them. What is most insidious among those who proclaim belief in God is the idolatry of religious doctrine, worship, polity, organization, and culture, and the use of disagreement on these as an excuse to mistreat others. This ranges from disregard to shunning to verbal attack, to physical assault, to murder, to genocide, all in an alleged defense of God who is omnipotent and needs no defenders. It would seem silly if it were not so profoundly tragic. There is a reason Jesus spoke of two great commandments rather than just the one to love God. He saw that those who claimed to love God were using it as an excuse for all manner of ungodly behavior toward other people. He said, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Then he immediately illustrated the command to love your neighbor as yourself by describing to his listeners a neighbor who was a Samaritan, a despised outsider whose religious beliefs were flawed. Jesus eliminated the loophole of claiming neighbor to be someone like us who we love anyway or who has religious beliefs that we approve of. And on the outside chance that someone might claim an enemy fell outside of even the broadest category of neighbor, he said, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. He didn't leave any loopholes. So we need to begin to look at how we are to treat each other and how our religious concepts get in the way. Worse, lead us to treat each other viciously rather than lovingly. We need to look deeply into our own motives and actions and understand what it is that Jesus desires of us. Worship not of concepts, but of the one true God. And we will return to this in much greater depth next time. May it always be that things done in the name of a love for God actually reflect the love of the God whom we claim to be serving. And therein lies a significant challenge. Thank you for that, George. Well, as mentioned, we'll continue this discussion next time we get together. In the meantime, did you know that you can hear past editions of the program on the website whatwebelieveandwhy.com? And there are study guide resources available there as well. And of course, you can get your own copy of the book, a handy tool with which to review sections, whatwebelieveandwhy.com is where all that takes place. We hope you're going to join us next time for another edition of What We Believe and Why. We'll be right back. 